One thing we've learned during the course of the Peninsula War is that you can never underestimate the French. Just weeks after their crushing defeat at the Battle of Vittoria, they're striking back. Can the Allied line hold? Will Wellington's army be forced to retreat? Or can the French be contained, allowing the Allies to finally sweep into France and end the war? Today's story really is tremendous and includes the story of the 92nd Regiment of Foot, the Gordon Highlanders, who fight an entire French division to a standstill in what the historian Jack Weller calls one of the greatest feats in military history. Welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel, the place for military history geeks and people who love great stories of daring do. Today I'm joined by two incredible historians, Colonel Nick Lipscomb and Marcus Beresford. You'll be shocked by the amount of knowledge these two guys have. Now I know that I'd previously planned to wrap up my Peninsula War season with today's episode, but the content is so good and has so much fascinating detail that I've decided to break it down into three parts that I will release over the next month, so be sure to subscribe to make sure you don't miss those. As you'll probably recall, at the end of November 2021, the Redcoat History Show discussed the Battle of Vittoria, and today we pick up where I left off, with the French beaten and retreating. But should the British have been able to crush the survivors and win the war, or were they too distracted by the plunder they'd taken from the French baggage train? First up with his thoughts is Nick Lipscomb. Victoria was a tremendous victory. I mean, it was um, uh, a very dispersed battle. Wellington's forces were advancing on four separate routes. Uh, and in fact, the uh, initial attacks by the 3rd and 7th Division had, had misfired as a result of that. Um, but I think probably too much is made of this business of uh, the plunder and the uh, result uh, of the plunder, which uh, as some historians have written, had therefore prevented Wellington capturing the uh, three armies. Um, uh, I think that uh, has been overstated. Soldiers always plunder. And let's be quite honest. Uh, the plunder that was available at the end of the Battle of Vittoria was simply exceptional. I mean, this was the plunder that the French had taken uh, from the central sources of a country that had been the greatest empire in the world. Um, and uh, they had had six years to put that plunder together, and it was now strewn all over the, uh, the, um, the valley bottom. Secondly, it's fair to say that up until this point, Wellington uh, never let his army really out of his sight. I mean, even when we then come back to Waterloo, he can put his arms around the battlefield and, and his, his army, less for those forces that he pushed out to the west, anticipating Napoleon's uh, manoeuvre, which didn't come. Um, he's about to find out how difficult it is uh, to uh, expand his wings, in the words of William Napier, uh, for a long flight once he gets to uh, the Pyrenees. And so uh, the concept that Wellington post-Vittoria was going to let his army go uh, and to try and um, independently operate to try and capture these uh, dispersed uh, and fleeing at this stage French armies, I think is, again, overstated. Um, Wellington always liked to keep a very firm control of his forces. Fair to say, of course, he did expect a bit more from his cavalry uh, than he got. Some units perform well, others uh, less well. Uh, I think what Wellington was most annoyed about was the fact that there had been a significant breakdown in discipline 
in his army as a result of the plunder. And in fact, had the French armies turned and rallied and, dare I say it, counterattacked, uh, then things may have been slightly different in the wake of the great battle itself. Here's Marcus Beresford. While in retrospect this was a decisive battle, I don't think it was quite that clear in the immediate aftermath. And it has been called an unsatisfactory victory. And remember, while the French lost, I think, some 8,000 killed, wounded and missing, the Allies lost 5,500, of which 3,500 were British troops. So it wasn't insignificant in that sense. Of course, the French had lost the, the famous 150 guns, and the baggage train, Joseph's thing, and this caused, the, or led to the looting. In terms of uh, whether more could have been done at the actual battlefield, the initial for French retreat was quite well managed, I think, and it, it later turned to a bit of a rout, but it was quite well managed. We've got to remember, in terms of a follow-up, that not only was Clausel hanging around with 14,000 men, but Foy was also in the locality with another fairly large force. So, you know, it wasn't quite as easy as saying, go on to France, boys. You know, this just wasn't, I don't think, quite as easy. It's fair to say that um, the British government um, were pretty convinced that the job had been done. And they were already making arrangements for, um, if not Wellington's army, but certainly for Wellington himself to move up to the north uh, to join the British force, which had been sent to the Low Countries in um, uh, earlier part of 1813. Because it's quite clear now that the main effort <clears throat> was going to be in the north. Because, you know, but come the, the final victories in the south, Wellington's in the wrong place, effectively, because Napoleon, when he abdicates, is in Paris, surrounded by the other three uh, key allied nations. But uh, victories greeted in London with great celebration. Uh, Beethoven writes his TDM, of course. Um, and it was uh, a great victory, but the war was far from over. We've got thousands of French troops, 150,000 French troops still on Spanish soil. Foix, um, as Marcus has pointed out, up in the north towards San Sebastian. Um, and these troops are now flooding down towards the Pamplona Valley and then up uh, to the passes, the Pyrenean passes with uh, Gazan, Derlon and Rey crossing at, um, at a sort of combination of uh, Maya and Lorontes Valles uh, and Clausel himself heading over the Pyrenean Pass at Hakka. Uh, so, you know, within a couple of weeks, they're all back in France and and they're not dispersing. They're now moving into defensive positions along the Pyrenees and covering those passes, expecting, quite rightly, a, a follow up. Wellington splits his army following the battle. He sends uh, General Graham, Lord Lindoch. Uh, with about 25,000, I seem to recall, to head north to pursue Foix uh, and Malkun, who'd gone off with the baggage train up on that northern road on the uh, on the Bay en Chaussée, as it was known. Um, with the balance of his army, he then pursues the defeated uh, French army um, that are heading off down towards Pamplona. Uh, that's at the point Clausel links up. But he um, then uh, calls a halt. Um, his army is now spread far and wide. Um, the French have escaped over the Pyrenean passes. It's fair to say that uh, they, in pulling back, had also 
reinforced the two key fortresses that remained on Spanish soil, that is to say San Sebastián and Pamplona. Um, and in so doing, um, actually uh, left very strong and very capable garrisons uh, in both of them. Wellington himself really has got to do now three or perhaps four things. He's got to rest his army. They've covered you know, hundreds of miles uh, in the preceding weeks. He also needs to move his logistic hub from Lisbon to Santander. And this is a major undertaking and something that takes a considerable amount of time. After all, you know, we're now five, six years into the war um, and uh, the logistic facilities that are built up uh, for the British forces in Lisbon had been extensive and that has to now all be moved. It would be rather akin to trying to move uh, Camp Bastion uh, from Bastion into Kandahar, you know, in the space of a, a couple of weeks, it, it's going to take time. He's then got to um, look at either besieging or, uh, or, or containing San Sebastian and Pamplona. And Wellington's policy is he doesn't like to leave uh, large fortresses, and both of them have got a considerable number of troops, 3,000 or so French soldiers in each of them, um, in his rear when he advances forward. So he's got to uh, deal with those. And then in addition, finally, he's got to secure that Spanish-French border uh, with his army. So he's got an awful lot to do. I think you're right, Nick. Being cautious, he didn't want to leave strong places in his rear with a large French army in front of him and the uncertainty of what was happening uh, with Napoleon in Northern Europe. And we're in a situation where post Lutzen, uh, Napoleon's in Dresden and uh, the, uh, uh, an armistice is being declared. And I think he's also wary of, uh, of a Burgos type situation where he'd really uh, suffered in the previous year. So, so then he's, so he split his force, he's blockading Pamplona, uh, they're looking to besiege San Sebastian. And while this is going on, I understand that Marshal Soule has taken over command of the French forces from King Joseph. What's, what's his moves at this time? I think uh, Soult shows some pretty staggering efficiency at this stage. Um, the, the Battle of Vittoria was on the 21st of June. Uh, that news uh, reached uh, Napoleon in Dresden on the... 1st of July, and um, <clears throat> he extended the truce on that same day. And by the 11th of July, Soult is down in Bayonne, and that's over 1,800 kilometers. That's 165 kilometers a day. He reaches Paris in three days, and his orders are very simple. Push Wellington back across the Ebro. Napoleon needed a victory. He needed a victory to improve his negotiating position in Dresden. And where was he going to find it? And he really hoped that Soult could work a bit of magic down in Spain. And he brought huge energy, I think, to his command. And he reorganized extremely quickly. And he began, interestingly enough, by reassuring his troops that their defeats were not due to themselves, but due to an incompetent command. He abandoned the core uh, as, his, as his basis. And he's formed just three wings under Ray, uh, Derlon and, and Clausel. And he prepared then to go back into Spain. So that's the immediate uh, uh, scenario so far as Sult is concerned. I believe he did counterattack fairly promptly. I mean, extremely quickly. I mean, again, he was under pressure from uh, Paris. His plan uh, 
was the same one, actually, ironically, it had been penned by Jordan. Array and Clausel were, were to join forces. They were to attack the pass at Ontis Vallis, while Delon was to attack the pass at Maya. The operations actually worked quite well, it's fair to say. Villart was the reserve uh, with a Division Plus force, which was then on the coast road. Uh, heading around the Western Pyrenees towards San Sebastian. And the reason for him pushing forward was, of course, there was a dual aim here. Uh, it was to force Wellington to lift the siege, which had uh, started the first siege at San Sebastian, whilst um, uh, Salt's main aim with his three lieutenancies, each with about three divisions uh, strength. Um, and he does this worth making the point that the reason he gets rid of this groundbreaking, battle-winning uh, uh, formation, the core system, which had been introduced by Napoleon, is because of the egos of these core commanders, which have been uh, really undoing uh, the uh, lieutenants that have been operating uh, in the peninsula for the last five, six years. So these three lieutenancies are put together with about three divisions in each, and their task those attacking uh, both at Rontes Vallis and at Maya is to move, link up after they've cleared the passes, link up and then move on and um, relieve the, um, the blockade of Pamplona. But more importantly, to get inside Pamplona and to get the artillery. There were over 120 field guns, not siege guns. I mean, there was a massive number of siege guns in Pamplona. but um, And there was a siege train there too. But there were field guns, and these were the things uh, that, of course, the French armies had lost um, in great numbers following the battle at Vittoria. So he desperately uh, needed those. Now, the attacks um, from the French perspective are a bit slow, it's fair to say. The one at Rontes Vallis gets held up for a very long time. Um, and in simple terms, uh, Cole, Lowry Cole, commanding the 4th Division, he had responsibility for the path at Rontes Vallis, but behind him, some uh, five miles down that um, track, or main track towards the pass at Rontes Vallis, was, was Picton with his 3rd Division. And um, Cole lost his nerve, I think it's fair to say. His troops had done very well, but once the French had got around to the east, there was a foundry there, or Bethieta, which was held by the Spanish. And once that had been captured, it actually meant that the French could start to trickle troops in behind uh, the forward brigade of the 4th Division. Uh, and as I say, Cole, as last night, uh, light fell on uh, that day, the first attacks on the 25th of July. He withdrew back. Um, he pulls down the road, it's fair to say, bumps into Picton, and they both decide they're going to pull all the way back to Pamplona. I'll just pick up there, because I think if, if we look at the other side of the coin, what's happening in Pamplona? Um, Pamplona had originally been invested by Hill and the 6th Division as well. And then they drew back and the Spanish took over that siege. Um, and the, it was the army of the reserve of uh, Andalusia, I think, under right. Enrique That's O'Donnell. Uh, and Carlos de España, who came up then. But Correct. the French garrison there, as Nick has said, was a powerful one under General Louis Cassin. 4,000 men were in there. And as Nick has so rightly said, 80 guns, 80 field guns in there. And it actually took 
uh, four months eventually to capture Pamplona, of course. And one of the reasons was that, in fact, just before the Battle of Victoria, uh, the French had managed to run in a convoy with uh, plentiful food supplies. And uh, eventually they were starved out, but th th that, was, that was what happened eventually. But the other thing is that Wellington didn't send his heavy guns to Pamplona. Um, he actually only sent, I think, uh, 12 pounder guns captured at Vittoria from the French to help in the siege. So th there was a, a slight imbalance there, I suppose. Yes, I think it's also worth adding here, um, you know, you've got two massive fortresses, you know, one, as we've now pointed out, with 4,000 men, the other one with 3,000 men. Why didn't Wellington besiege them both? Why did he blockade Pamplona and, and take the 6th Division away and put the Spanish there, who did a very good job, it's fair to say, of their blockade? Um, why didn't he besiege them both? Well, the simple answer is he didn't have two siege trains. Um, he's faced with a choice. He's moving uh, his siege train around by sea, and therefore there's the first clue as to why he chooses San Sebastian and not an inland uh, location where he's got to move that very heavy, cumbersome siege train, all the ammunition, all the uh, stores, the siege stores. Um, but also, it's fair to say that San Sebastian sat on or very close to that Béon, shall say, that main artery that came through from the Western Pyrenees into Spain. And therefore, from his perspective, uh, that was the location that he wanted to take first. That gave him uh, both an ingress, but also an egress route should he need it very, very quickly. And we also have to uh, bear in mind, and we'll see this for the subsequent operations, Wellington always kept. Uh, either his left foot or his right foot near to or in the sea. And he did that because, of course, his Royal Navy, or the Royal Navy, not his, but the Royal Navy had naval supremacy by this stage. Although it's fair to say that the French uh, conducted some extremely audacious operations in that right-hand corner of the Bay of Biscay down there, uh, running the gauntlet, uh, from Bayonne, Bordeaux, with small ships, gunboats into San Sebastian, even during uh, the period of the siege itself. But that's it's a point worth making as to why he blockades one and, and, uh, and besieges the other. Maya is a slightly different battle. Um, Daddy Hill, uh, Roland Hill, has got responsibility for uh, the sort of left wing, if you like. Um, he was one of the few people, along with Marshal Beresford, uh, that uh, Wellington had full confidence in, it's fair to say. And we, we see some interesting um, interpersonal relationships that developed during this period of the Peninsula War uh, with, in particular, his divisional commanders, who've been at his right or left shoulder throughout the war. You know, these are not men that have just been parachuted mm. in. They've been with him throughout the war. And yet here we have... Lowry Cole, an extremely capable uh, individual who, who, want of a better word, bottles it at Roncesvalles. Uh, we have Picton, uh, you know, a real fiery Welshman and an extremely brave man who, again, um, they get into a sort of huddle uh, halfway down the road in the, in the, uh, in the dark of the, the 25th, 26th of July and decide, yeah, let's pull back. You know, um, that's not how we would remember Picton, certainly from his um, his contribution to the Battle of Victoria just a few uh, weeks earlier. But uh, at Maya, uh, the commander in charge is none other than William Stewart. And William Stewart's an interesting man, a man that Wellington 
um, had all sorts of run-ins with throughout mm. the Peninsular War. He didn't really want Stuart commanding a division, but nonetheless, Stuart is now commanding uh, the second division. He once wrote of him that it's necessary that Stuart should be under the particular charge of somebody. And of mm. course, that somebody was Roland Hill. Uh, but of course, in the mountains, it's very difficult uh, to make sure that people are doing what you've tasked them or ordered them to do. And of course, in the morning of the 25th, when those initial attacks begin um, over in the uh, towards the east, the passes at Ronthes Valles, Stuart thinks, oh, there's something going on over there, gets on his horse with a few of his aides de camp and rides off over to the east, leaving uh, his two brigades, uh, Pringles and Cameron's brigades, uh, without the divisional commander at the very point then that the attack then comes in at the Gorosville. There are two advanced routes up onto the pass at Maya. There's the Chemin d'Anglais, which is the long winding road slightly further over to the east. And then there's the main road. And it's up the Chemin d'Anglais that um, the Derlon's uh, forces uh, start to move up, if I've got this right. Um, it, uh, I think it was Marancin who came up the, the main road. Uh, Cameron is holding the Chemin d'Anglais while Pringle has got responsibility for the main road and the main pass. Uh, and there is a small peak there, the Gorospiel, uh, on which a small picket was located. And that picket gets attacked quite early in the morning. It's being provided by Captain Moyle Shearer. 90 of his men that's overrun by about 9 30 10 o'clock in the morning and then they push back onto Cameron's brigade Cameron's other battalions which are in the village of Maya about two kilometers to the south they've got to move extremely quickly and get into position to try and block the French hmm. but um it's it's almost impossible to hold back because you've got two uh divisions um one after the other that are holding that pass uh, or pushing that pass at Maya. And it's there that, of course, you've got this extraordinary action uh, with the uh, the 91st holding the uh, that pass at Maya itself. So to sort of flag what we're about to discuss, the, the, the quote I found, which I found was fascinating, was um, historian uh, Jack Weller, who called the stand of the first 92nd one of the greatest feats in military history. Um, maybe you could follow up on that, perhaps yourself, Marcus. Well, well uh, I, I'll let Nick come in on the quote itself, but certainly Cameron's brigade, which, uh, as Nick said, was part of that second division under William Stewart, it suffered the highest casualties of any brigade uh, in, in this encounter. And the Gordon Highlanders were the, had the highest regimental ca uh, casualties, I think some 350 killed, wounded or missing. And um, the pass was held with the assistance of Portuguese artillery. There was a Portuguese artillery uh, brigade there as well. But the French got through. Um, I think they uh, actually used an alternative track to get in behind and they brushed aside uh, the picket, as, as, as Nick has said. Uh, and Stuart had to withdraw and he lost his guns. He lost his four guns there. So the, the Allied position was saved, really, by the fact that the French advances, both at Maya and Roncevallis, were conducted very slowly. And uh, the problem for Soult was, and for anyone who knows these mountains, the problem was that in places, the army could only advance in a very narrow formation, and sometimes even sort of single file almost. And that was a real problem for Soult. So I'll let Nick come back in there. 
Yes, can I start by apologising to the Gordons by referring to the 91st? I meant the 92nd, of course. Um, yes, I mean, their feet on the Chamin, um, which is probably the, where they held it, about a kilometre further to the southwest of the Gorospiel. It's an extraordinary piece of terrain in that it's about five, maybe 10 meters wide on the top, and it literally just falls off either side. And so a small group of men on the crest uh, facing towards the French who were coming uh, to, to, towards them from a sort of north uh, easterly direction um, were able to hold out, um, but they were taking fearful casualties there's no doubt in fact i have another quote here from george bell of the 34th who was down in the valley slightly to the south uh, part of cameron's brigade um and was watching what was going on and he said uh that they stood there referring of course to the 91st uh, oh, sorry, 92nd i'm going to get really told off uh, they stood there like a stone wall overmatched by 20 to 1 until half their blue bonnets lay beside those brave northern warriors when they uh, retired their dead bodies lay as a barrier to the advancing foe oh but they did fight well that day i can see the line now of the killed and wounded stretched upon the heather as the living retired closing to the center it was um an extraordinary feat of heroism um, but it couldn't last forever. And probably half an hour, maybe an hour, they held up those two divisions until basically, as Marcus has alluded, the French began to push around the flanks, although it was extremely difficult for them to do that. Pringle had also, from his position on the pass, been uh, feeding troops along to support Cameron's troops. But in the end, it was just the sheer weight of numbers uh, that won the day. It's at this point that um, our good friend William Stewart rides back on the position to find uh, that both uh, Pringle and Cameron had actually held the situation, but he's now forced to pull back onto the main road at Maya to a first defensive position, uh, which he does, concentrating his two brigades. But by now, you've got the guts of three French divisions that are pushing on towards them. Uh, Marcus has made the point that Kuna's Portuguese guns um, were in a tremendously good position. They had been able to uh, provide um, enfilade fire from a defilade position on the Chemin d'Anglais. They were in a slightly more precarious position up on a precipice, in fact, uh, and firing down on Moranson's men as he was pushing up onto the pass. But it did mean that Dakuna had to abandon those guns. Um, as the French pushed forward. And um, Wellington made a great thing of this because they were, in fact, the first guns that he had ever lost in battle, which uh, for Wellington was a significant thing. It almost uh, became a personal desire for him never to, to lose guns. Anyway, look, to cut a long story short, um, the reserves of the 7th Division now come up. Light is beginning to fade. And uh, it's Barnes' brigade <clears throat> that arrives first. Stuart throws them straight in against Moranson's leading uh, vanguard troops. And in fact, uh, there is a, a feeling that um, Derlon had this feeling that the whole of the 7th uh, brigade had arrived, a 7th division had arrived at Begibon, and therefore he uh, chose to uh, 
to hold any more attacks for that evening. And it's at that point that the fighting sort of peters out. And during the night, Hill then withdraws. He doesn't pull back as far as um, uh, as, as uh, Cole and Picton had done over to the east at Ronthus Valley. But nonetheless, he pulls back sufficiently far enough for the French to advance and to take pretty much the pass at Meyer. So it seems like this this uh, this attack by Soult's forces was tactically quite successful, but what did it actually achieve for them? The salient point really is that uh, Wellington comes across from the east and takes control here. And in a nutshell, they fight two major uh, encounters in, in and around Sararan, north of Pamplona, over uh, three days. And the end result is that Soult realizes he's getting nowhere and he retires back across the Pyrenees. That's it in a nutshell. And furthermore, I mean, he lost, Soult lost over 10,000 men and the initial surprise had been offset by the slow advance. So Soult now had a dispirited and somewhat chaotic army. But once again, he sets about reorganizing and preparing to defend France. Um, Soult was perhaps lucky in that Wellington was waiting on developments in Central Europe. And Wellington, uh, uh, Nix mentioned earlier on that the siege of San Sebastian was suspended um, uh, uh, while this fighting was going on. And in reality, it doesn't get properly uh, organized and reinvested again until uh, the 25th or 26th of August. So uh, there's a long delay here. And Wellington is, as I say, waiting on what's happening in, in Northern Europe. And meanwhile, Soult is preparing earthworks and redoubts along the French frontier, along the, that part of the lower part of the Pyrenees, uh, at the western end of the Pyrenees. It's a linear defense, but he's a good organizer. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's not right to compare this with Torres Vedras because he didn't have the time or the men or the equipment to do that. But this is what Soult is now doing. If I can return, though, very quickly to, uh, you know, did Sue achieve anything with the battles of the Pyrenees? Really, Sue had two objectives, lifting the siege at uh, San Sebastian and um, uh, also capturing Pamplona. Uh, he succeeds in the first, he fails uh, in the second. But um, he's also pushed Wellington's forces. Uh, he's tested them in the Pyrenees. I think Wellington would have been reasonably pleased with the outcome. My view is that Sororum was a battle lost by Sioux um, and Sioux's forces, not helped by the fact that Derlon didn't push on from the pass at Meyer and come down uh, the, uh, the the road slightly to the um, to, to the uh, west, which is in fact the one that Suin um, uh, takes to extract his army, um, uh, having failed to uh, force Wellington's army at Sororan. Um, but I think Wellington would have also been somewhat concerned with the performance of some of his divisional commanders, Stuart, the second division, Picton, the third division, and Cole, the fourth division, in terms of their performance. Uh, in independent command, because what Wellington is more than aware is that he's got to give much more freedom of manoeuvre. It's forced to because of the terrain uh, to give much more freedom of manoeuvre to these divisional commanders. And I don't think he would have been uh, hugely enamoured by their performance, uh, by some of them uh, and their performance to that point. And so the Peninsula War is still not over. There's more hard fighting to come. 
In two weeks, I'm going to post a short episode looking at the Siege of San Sebastian. And then at the start of April, we're going to finally wrap up the Peninsula War. And in between all of that, I'm going to be doing a short episode that I'll release on the 12th of March, the anniversary of the Battle of Ntombe Drift. That's actually the audio from a talk I did recently when I gained my tour guide qualification for KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. So I think you'll enjoy that. Before I go today, I just want to say a big thank you to Nick and Marcus, who will be back with us for the rest of this journey into France. They both have books out that may interest you, including Marcus's new one on General Sir Dennis Pack. That looks excellent. 